You're listening to Driven by Insight. Join Willie Walker, Walker and Dunlop's chairman and CEO, as we bring you fresh perspectives about leadership, business, the economy, and commercial real estate. Willie hosts a diverse network of leaders as they share wisdom that cuts across industry lines. His guests are experts in their fields. From leading economists and CEOs to Harvard and Yale professors and everything in between. Our one goal is simple, providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real-time market analyses. Good afternoon, everybody. I am Willie Walker, and I, um, I think I came up with this idea to have a look back on Doug Bibby's leadership of NMHC, what's happened in the multifamily industry since 2001 when Doug took over running NMHC, and then talk about where the industry is going forward. And so I, as I thought about that, and as Doug and I talked about this, we thought about asking three both friends, former chairmen and women of NMHC, and incredibly successful entrepreneurs and leaders in the multifamily industry to join us to both reflect upon Doug's leadership, as well as give some insights as it relates to their own paths in this industry and what they see as it relates to opportunities going forward. My guests, I think, in this room don't need any introduction, but Sue Ansel from Gables, David Schwartz from Waterton, and Daryl Carter from Avanath. As I was doing a little bit of research on my esteemed guest today, one of the things that jumped out at me is that you all went to college in the Midwest. So we have DePaul University, the University of Illinois, Denison University, and the University of Michigan. I'm just curious, Sue, what is it about all of you Midwesterners that made you so successful in the multifamily industry? You know, I think that Midwesterners grow up knowing that you have to work hard. There are many keys and things that help you be successful, but you can't underestimate hard work. So, David, you're the only one who was educated in the Midwest and stayed in the Midwest. What memo didn't you get <laughs> as it relates to get your education there and then move on? I, I can't leave Chicago in spite of and every reason to leave it. Um, I think it's one of the great cities of the world. It's a real big city between, it's really New York and Chicago are the two great cities, true urban lifestyles you can have. And so I love it, but I do get out of there in January. I spend quite a bit of time I, I know you outside do. of it in January. And you go from cold to cold by going and to I go to cold Hole, to Wyoming. Cold. Doug, you went to Denison and then got into a career in the PR industry uh, with J. Walter Thompson, the ad industry. And we're in D.C. and we're running their D.C. office before going to Fannie Mae and being at Fannie Mae during a very important time in Fannie's tenure under our mutual friend David Maxwell, where with you and the rest of the executive team, you took Fannie Mae from being a huge liability to the American taxpayer and country to being one of the truly great corporations in America. Thinking back on that before we get to your time at NMHC, what did you take away from those 16 years at Fannie Mae and working with David as far as making Fannie Mae truly one of the good to great companies, as Jim Collins talks about in his book? As I said before, the beauty of working at Fannie was we were able to reinvent what was a essentially a government bureaucracy, and we still had like 20% of the employees when I joined were civil servants. There was one product line. It was a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage. Um, there was no arms, no multifamily, no MBS. We were able to reinvent everything that we did. I, I just jumped out. I had two small kids, 
I jumped out of bed every day. I was there at 7.45, and I went home probably at 6.45 at night. I just couldn't. I loved it. And uh, part of it was David's leadership. He just, he just picked great people. He had an eye for talent, and it didn't matter if it was a perfect fit or not. He had an eye for talent. He also had, he was way ahead of his time in the interest of women and minorities. And when you, by the time he left, and you, you looked at our board round table or board table, it was pretty diverse. Daryl and I have talked about this in the past. I mean, when you have an executive committee that's really diverse, your recruiting gets so much easier. But anyways, the, the, the opportunity to reinvent a company and to have it recognized. Peter is the biggest return that Peter Lynch ever made was in the investment in, in Fannie Mae stock. And as you think back on your time at Fannie and what you learned during that 16-year period and all the excitement that you brought to your role at NMHC, as you now look back on your 20 years at NMHC, what's the common thread there beyond diversity and opportunity for women and minorities? Well, it's the real estate industry and it's, it's, it's real estate finance, you know, in both cases. And that's, I came into this job with a network of people that I knew, and they were in both in single family and, and multifamily. Most of my time, Willie, at, at Fannie was, was on the single family side because that was 95% of our business, and you worked on, was bringing in the revenue. The common theme was while I moved from single family, understanding single family to understanding multifamily, we're putting people in homes, and that was, uh, it's always been a motivator for me, and it always helped me recruit at Fannie Mae is we're putting a roof over people's heads. And, you know, you're not polluting the environment. You're not doing bad things. You're, you're actually helping people achieve their dream. Daryl, one of the things that I've heard Doug talk about as it relates to the transformation of the multifamily industry from when he joined to now is the institutionalization of the industry, the institutionalization of capital formation. You've been incredibly fortunate and successful at Avanath of creating this fantastic institutional money management firm. Would that have been possible in 2000? In 2000, yes. I mean, <laughs> well, we started in 1991. Okay. And, and one interesting note to just piggyback what Doug said, I mean, we were 1992 when I started my company. There was an article about our company, and I get a phone call from a guy named Larry Dale <laughs> and didn't know him from Adam. And he said, I'm Larry Dale. I'm a EVP at Fannie Mae, and we want to talk to you about becoming a lender. And I'm like, what's that? <laughs> and that led to a journey of building a company that we started and eventually in 1994 that we later sold for over $100 million. And so that worked. <laughs> but Doug, and you know, later I didn't know Doug then, but all the values that Doug has and that many of the people at Fannie then had and still have were instrumental in really, I think, in, in you coming to NMHC, shaping the industry in a positive way, one, to accommodate more institutional capital. Because the one thing, when I actually started in the early 90s and maybe a decade late, there was a thing with pension funds. If it had a bed in it, they wouldn't invest in it. There was, you know, 1991. And then we're now the favored asset class. But that's, that's a pretty big step to go in three years. And David, on that, I mean, you started Waterton in 95. Think about that first, when you were a private company then, capital raising versus now Waterton at its scaled level and the types of funds you're raising. 
I mean, I'm assuming that over the last 25 years, that whole process has just transformed materially. We progressed from 95 till today, what I call the food chain of equity capital. So, but it's always been larger investors. So that theme has always stayed the same. Our, I didn't, when I left EQR to form Waterton in 1995, the one thing I was missing is I didn't know how to find capital. That was not what I did in, in any part of my career. And I made a call to a guy named Steve Quazzo. Steve was a former equity person. He founded Pearlmark. And he was the capital guy there. And he he's like, I know a person who's really interested in multifamily, Penny Pritzker. And he gave me her number. I cold called her. I told her I had a deal in Austin, Texas. And the next thing you know, they were our partner. And then they did our first fund with the Pritzker family. And that's how we got launched into business. Off of one cold call, it was a warm call from Steve. But and then we progressed to investors like Lehman Brothers and uh, GE Capital, which is how I met Rick Hurd. Just kept progressing. Daryl did some stuff with us. We used to talk in the 90s about being struggling young artists and <laughs> try to help each other. We ultimately progressed into pensions and commingled funds. Sue, so you started at Gables just about that same time, right around 95, 96. 87. 87. <laughs> yeah. So, but that, but, but, but. So, it was hang on a second. Was, hang on. I just, it says on your bio on the Gables website, you've been at the company for 25 years. It's 25 plus. Ah. <laughs> the, fine the, the fine print. The fine print. Once you're over 25, yeah, you don't want to share. Just, just, you're you're so, eternally so, at Gables for 25 years. Yes. I like that. So, so my history is I joined the company when we were Trammell Core Residential in 1987. And so my career has been as a merchant builder. Then in 94, went public as a public company, and that's when Gables was formed. Operated as a public company for 11 years in 2005, taken private in the leveraged buyout as a closed-end fund, and then morphed in 2015 to an open-end fund. So I've had the advantage to see lots of different capital structures. Real estate is a capital-intensive business. There's lots of ways to raise capital, and the cycle ebbs and flows, and the company I work for is a great picture of how that happens. How long along that continuum was it when you decided, I want to be CEO of this company someday? So uh, that was never an, an aspiration for me. I sit in this seat because I had worked in or with or each department in the company, with the exception of accounting, worked for me over my time at Crow and Gables, my background's degree in economics. So, you know, a financial thing, you might think I'd ended up in the accounting or that side of the shop, but never did. But I sit in this seat because I had the most diverse background and the greatest depth of knowledge about the organization when it was time for a new CEO. Stu actually, her aspiration was to be general manager of the Chicago Right, exactly right. <laughs> GM of the Chicago Cubs. Right, exactly. When did you give up on that dream? He hasn't. She hasn't. hasn't. She yeah. hasn't. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't yet. And they could use you. Yeah. <laughs> I know, the Ricketts family's doing okay, but. We might have to do a, a group yeah. deal here where George W. Bush finally gets his dream of being commissioner of baseball and right, go exactly. on and take over the exactly Cubs. Right. But talk about, uh, I guess my question is, a little bit along the lines of both your career aspirations, but then also when it was 
possible for a woman to be CEO of a major real estate corporation? Yeah, it's, it's a great company. Look, at I, I ride on the shoulders of all that have come before me. I, when I think about just a half a generation before me, they didn't have the same kinds of opportunities. And I would tell you, I think it was really in the late 70s and early 80s, Fannie was doing things promoting women. It really became an option at that point for women to have a career. I'm blessed. What you ask when I wanted to become the CEO, that I would never say that was an aspiration. What was always an aspiration for me was to be able to learn and to be challenged. And so part of my jumping around in the, in the company, taking on different roles, was because I had the opportunity to learn more. And I really encourage men, women, any young person to try to do that. But I was blessed because I worked for men who believed in meritocracy. And if you delivered the goods, you were rewarded for that. That was not true universally early in my career. You know, when I, when I, I graduated from college in 82, so when I came out, I don't think that same, those same opportunities would have been available. I would, I think in the 90s, they started, it started to become available. And was your involvement with NMHC helpful? Oh, tremendously. It's been, I would tell, again, any young person, get involved locally, federally, nationally, whatever you can. You will commit some time, but you will get so much more back from what you contribute by the relationships that you develop, the knowledge that you develop, I became involved with NMHC back in the time when I was working on cable and phone technologies for our communities and trying to figure those out. Jim Arbery asked uh, Lori and, and a few of us to come and do a video for NMHC about how to do a cable contract or something, and that was really my first real involvement with, with NMHC. We created the first Optech before NMHC took that over. There are a few of us who, who started that, so it's a circuitous route, but be involved. It's, you'll, you'll reap far more rewards than time you, you commit. Doug, you've had plenty of chairmen and women that you have worked with. Can you talk about a difference in the leadership style of NMHC when Sue was chairwoman versus David or Daryl as chairmen? <laughs> and uh, pick your favorite chair. Which favorite? Your favorite? <laughs> <laughs> While you're at it, you know, while you're at it, just talking about your favorite. No, which I'm, which kid is your favorite child? Yeah. No, but to, if you would, because I think there, to whatever degree you want. Well, to Well, it's like it's well. like when people ask me if the administration changes. You know, is it better for you or is it worse for you? It's just different. You know, they're gonna. You know, one one administration is gonna come at us this way, and the other one's gonna come at us this way. I think we're better than that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, no, they, they, everybody has their own style. You know, going back to Peter Donovan, you know, he was, you know, he wanted to have weekly calls with me and, you know, Rick Campo every quarter would want to talk to me. You know, if, <laughs> if then, you know, Rick was just, you know, Hey, we trust you guys. All of them. I've just been blessed and, and, and we're able to pick, uh, unlike some other organizations where they're elected, we're able to pick our leaders. And that's a big difference. So I'm not going to, Pick a winner here. I love Daryl and I love David. I'm not looking for, for a winner at all. I guess the other thing, Doug, is we're talking about leadership and you working with distinct chairmen and chairwomen. It's challenging when you have that constant rotation of your partner. Just because you're kind of going at it every two years of a refresh on, well, I got to get to know this. And obviously, you know them before they get into the seat. But how challenging has that been over 20 years? You've had 10 chairmen and women, correct? 
There, yeah, but again, if you just are, I saw Don Bruner in here. Don, raise your hand if you're still here. There you are. In, in NAA's organization, you know, it's, it's a much shorter duration, and, and they're typical of most trade associations. The home builders are the same way, the realtors, and so on. We have a team together that stays together. And so, yeah, the, yeah David goes off, but he stays as past chair. So we worked Sue's, you know, what off this past couple of years. There's a great continuity in the team. And this, I didn't create this structure. It was created by my predecessor. I love it. But it's also closed the door on some recruits of people that said, oh, I'm not, I'm not doing 10 years. No, it's wonderful continuity. And we saw how this team worked together this past couple of years. Extraordinary. And, Daryl, all of us from outside look at the role of the chairman or chairwoman of NMHC and say, wow, that's a lot of work. How much work actually is it? Well, first, the staff makes it so easy. And, and they're incredible. Uh, and they make you look better than you should. But, you know, one of the things, so it is a lot of work, but it is a pleasure. And I remember, you know, one of the, the interesting things are the relationships uh, I found between the people. I, when I was vice chair, I served under Tom Bazzuto. And, and so I spent a lot of time in that transition. And the same thing when I went from uh, myself to Bob DeWitt. And there's a closeness that develops and and I remember Tom Bazzuto said, Daryl, it's a feeling to serve in the industry that is really special, cherish every day. And I remember Tom, you know, telling me that. But the one thing that I think Doug does, and, and just in terms of culture, is that David and I have been friends a long time, but David's like a brother now. And, and Sue is the same way. I mean, they are beyond industry colleagues, and everybody can and we, it becomes a, a, a fraternity or a sorority that is so close that of everybody I serve with, they have a special relationship. Was there ever a time when you said, man, I got to get back to my day job? Well, you know, this industry is our day job. I mean, everything that we work on is... I was going to say, I, was, I thought the exact same thing. That is a damn good answer. It, it, I thought you were going to say without a second, yes. No, it is our day job. I mean, we're fighting for affordability. We're all these different things is our day job. I mean, and, and for each one of us to do it, it is far more harder than for this collective group. And when you were chairman, the most challenging issue you and Doug had to deal with was there legislation? Was there? Oh, well, we were doing. Uh, it's always, always a political issue. But what was the issue that the two of you got on the phone? Said, oh, we got we, we got a real one here. So you followed Tom. Tom followed. It's probably GSE. Yeah. Some of the yeah. GSE reform coming, you know, there was some of that. The most challenging moment was dodging Bill Clinton's uh, golf balls. He almost killed us. the time you played golf with Bill Clinton. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I mean, that's kind of a perk. But, but Bill we almost al- lost. Bill almost, yeah, yeah we had, Bill uh, decided to drop a ball while Dell and I were, dry, were driving our carts across the course, and... Um, we almost got killed. <laughs> that had been tough to lose an MHC chair out on the golf course. So, David, in, in thinking about the perks of being a chairman or a past chairman, you got the opportunity to just interview Bob Iger and read his book and, and look at that from a leadership standpoint and have the in-depth conversation you just had. What did you take away from either Bob's book or the discussion you just had from a leadership standpoint? Yeah, the well, one, I don't know how many were there, but that was one of the highlights of my chairmanship. I, I, I missed out on a lot of the perks, the at least the first year of my 
chairmanship. We didn't have one meeting. It was all virtual. But Bob's book is great. It's a, it's a great leadership book. I don't know if you guys have read it. I would say some of the things he says about, and we didn't talk about it today, but servant leadership, emotional intelligence, authenticity, and trust are probably my biggest takeaways. And he, he was so good at that. He, he is the real deal. And someone like Steve Jobs, who was basically at war with his predecessor and had no trust in the company and then turns around and sells his business, Pixar, that was Bob. That was all Bob. And he was masterful at that and, and with his people. And it was a great book, and I, I've, I'm going to implement a lot of the things I've learned in it. Sue, when you and I were at lunch, we were talking about that, what David just talked about as far as trust. One of the things that I, in the book that David just underscored was that when Iger, I I wrote Bob a note and said to him after reading his book that rather than being called ride of a lifetime, that it should have been called keeper of legacies. Because as David talked to Iger about during his discussion, he convinced Steve Jobs to sell him his baby. He convinced George Lucas to sell him his baby. I mean, he has four billionaire entrepreneurs who had created these companies and he convinced them that he was the keeper of their legacies. There's some kind of quality that Bob Iger has that got those people who are all, you can make whatever comments you want about Rupert Murdoch or Steve Jobs, but clearly not easy people to do things with. And he got them to give them his companies. As you think about how you built Gables, one of the things that you and I have talked about is trust and that we are in a people business. How have you built up that trust in your leadership at Gables in the CEO role? Well, I think one of the benefits I've had is having had the trust of the people that were ahead of me. And so I've always felt that my job was to continue with their legacy and share that same level of trust with our organization. We benefit from the fact that we have a lot of tenure within the organization. So similar to the NMHC chairs, uh, who I think of my brothers and sisters, and there is a bond and relationship, I have that same relationship with those people that I work with within Gables, and I encourage them to have that same level of relationship with the people they work with. Look, at there's nothing that makes me happier than when someone in Gables has a high degree of success and is recognized for that. That's a win for all. And so when I think every day about what needs to happen at the company, I'm also thinking about what can we do to help the associates within Gables be successful, get the recognition, and share in the rewards that we're able to achieve as an organization. I'm going to add on to something that that these guys didn't say, if I can, about the opportunity to interview different folks. And and David, God bless him, didn't get a lot of the perks that the chair role typically does. But for me, one of the best things was having the 15, 20, 30 minutes with whomever you're interviewing backstage, not on screen, not on camera, to really pick their brain and ask them what, you know, you read, as you well know, for things like this, you read a lot and you prepare and you do that for each of these interviews and you have a list of a hundred things that you'd like to ask and having that time backstage in the green room to really poke at it. Alan Mullaney was somebody who was here years ago and he was 
the chairman of Ford or had just come from Ford. He'd been at Boeing before. But just having the opportunity to talk to him and think about the impact that he had on the people he had the, in those large organizations, the trust that he had to place in the people and that they had to place in him coming from Boeing to, to Ford, that's a pretty big change. So those are some of the really unique opportunities that we get in these roles, and, and they are chances of a lifetime. When you think back to when you first joined NMHC, and now as you think about passing the reins to somebody else, what were the first things you did to say, I'm the right person for this job? And then what would you consult or advise your successor as it relates to the quickest way for him or her to establish that same kind of trust? Well, the very first thing I did is I told the staff who I am, what my expectations are. Don't hide bad news from me. Let's take action on it as early as we can. Always be honest with me. Always be forthright. And just to sort of set a tone with the staff and then sort of tackled the, in, the industry's issues from a strategic point of view. It, it, we think back to 2001. Rental housing was considered a way station, either housing for the poor or a way station to home ownership. If you look at the valuations of multifamily assets, you know, office and retail had probably a 200 to 300 basis point advantage over multifamily. The technology side of the business was moribund. We were test, we were beta testing property management software and 2002. And so we had a, a lot to accomplish. And then investors, we talked about this a little earlier, investors didn't really understand the ability, predictability of returns of the business. So I talked to investors, international as well as domestic, and they'd say, well, we don't like your business. And I say, well, why not? Because you turn, at that time, we had 80% turnover of residents which has also gone down significantly. And they would say, well, we don't like, you know, go, I, I, with the office business, we know we got a 10-year lease. We, we, we know exactly what we're getting. I said, yeah, but it may have been a lousy lease from the owner's perspective. And so um, we, when we turn our assets, typically, our units, we typically price them up. And so all of a sudden, you know, slowly, Daryl was a great example of this too. We, on the affordable side of the business, I mean, he, you know, we would say, oh, gosh, it was earlier, if it had a bed in it, then it was a... It, the housing for the workforce and the affordable stuff, oh, my God, it's risky. And Daryl really convinced, with the numbers, how compelling his story is. And his story and others in the business, we began to really convince investors that this is a highly attractive sector. And so it was really just trying to tackle all these different things where we the perception was we were just housing for the poor, it was a cowboy business and no sophistication and so on. And I think we, we built the story uh, where today we are a highly valued asset. We're respected. We're way up the technology curve. Investors understand our business. They prefer our business. I feel we're in a, a lot stronger position than when I took over. So that, uh, that I'm, and, but that's the job that the staff of NMHC have done. They're remarkable people. I'm proud of them every single day. We all come to this conference that I think you said to me has 4,100 people at it. 4,200. 4,200. <laughs> Clearly, we all look at the growth of the industry. But as it relates to the influence of NMHC, you go back to 2001 when people kind of had the apartment industry in that box you just outlined. Today, fast forward, an institutionalized asset, millions of Americans living in rental housing, incredible investor returns. But what has that enabled NMHC to do? You obviously now have a large pack that raises a lot of money on an annual basis to have political influence. But as you sit there and say, okay, I can look from my seat, 
of what we've done at Walker and Dunlop and the influence that we can have. And I can say, wow, you know, I can do this and this today that I couldn't do then. Give us that parallel of where you were in 2001 and to where you are today. Well, a couple of things. Um, number one, when we brought Cindy Chetty in, along with Peter Donovan's leadership, we built our pack up so that we truly have a seat at the table. When you're the number two disperser of PAC funds in all of real estate, you garner attention. We've also been extremely balanced so that when we go up on the Hill, since we're giving roughly 50-50 to Democrats and Republicans, they know we're being fair. Those are some of the things that really resonate, I think, with people. The third thing is really, I've always said, go up on Capitol Hill, not with your hat in your hand, Go up on Capitol Hill and with the media with the facts. Don't try to sugarcoat things. Give them the facts. And I think we gained a lot of respect, particularly from the, the media, but also from the staff who do all the work on Capitol Hill for our integrity and the, the integrity of our facts and the fact that we don't go up there and say, you'll give us something. I think just those are the keys to me. Daryl, you had a panel earlier today on <laughs> diversity and inclusion. As you think about the industry and where it's come over the last two decades and what you talked about this morning on your panel, how far have we come and how far do we have to go? We've still got a long way to go, number one. But we've made progress. And I think that part of it is I think Doug has been instrumental relative to any other trade association. I mean, Peter Donovan and, and Rick Campo really were the start at this initiative. And I just remember... Rick, who just embraced it, and he came to me and he said, I need to find, you know, black and Latino board members. And everybody, there was leadership and way before George Floyd. And, oh, and, yeah. and we've had a very direct approach in terms of making sure we put the issues out there, which is what we talked about today. But more importantly, trying to, you know, the, the, my panel today, I tried to say, here, Three incredibly successful entrepreneurs who are building businesses, and aren't they amazing in what they've created? And that is something that the industry should see, that their talent and opportunity comes in a lot of shapes and forms. And I think we've made a lot of progress. I think we have a long way to go still. But we're, we're moving there. I, I'm an optimist. You have to be an optimist in this business. Yes, you do. <laughs> and if you had a magic wand to wave, Daryl, as it relates to the one or two things that need to be changed to provide minorities with more opportunity, what is it? Oh, it's number one, which is the game changer, and is capital flows. Now, I listened to David, you know, and he was blessed to, to you had one cold call or to, a warm call. And when we started uh, my company in 1991, Capri Capital, I mentioned today it was my 57th meeting that I got a yes. Yeah. Now, with all due respect, my first 20, my pitch sucked. <laughs> right. <laughs> and one of the things that you learn is the first no that I got, you know, I was, I was pissed and like, oh, my God, this, you know, and then you start listening to the no's. You start processing. You start getting better at it. You start listening and said, okay, note to self, don't say this, say that. And it's like anything. And you, do, it's the same with you. I mean, I think the game changer with any company and emerging companies, access to capital. That's the number one thing. And we really have to create 
some opportunities, 90% of the capital flows are going to big institutional players. And just as we have innovation, when you look at the tech business, I look at, for instance, General Motors. Why don't they dominate the electric car business? They should. They had a head start. But who does it? It's Tesla, someone that's new. And so that's the thing that I think about when you look at diverse firms and you look at innovation, that that's the next Tesla, because it's never going to be the large incumbent company that makes the breakthrough, because they're, they have that sense of incumbency. We have gasoline cars, and that's our business. So we have to start looking at the industry and innovation in the same way. Sue, Gables is very diverse. When did you feel like you got to the What was the key to getting diversity in the sense of obviously it's been something that has been at top of mind for you, but was there anything that Gables did to make it so that as I scan through your website, the number of women and minorities that show up is fantastic in comparison to many, many other competitor firms that I would look at? I attribute it back to what I spoke to before, which was I worked for the leaders of our organization believed in meritocracy. And we were successful in finding diverse associates throughout the organization who were creative and were thoughtful and smart, and they brought the goods, and so they were promoted. We continue to focus on it. It continues to be a focus for us. You can't, it's an industry imperative. We have to look like the people that we are serving. And most organizations, my, my organization doesn't yet at the right as much as we'd like to, so we need to continue to focus on it. But it is a, it's not an initiative. It has to be part of your core. So, David, I want to shift a little bit to looking forward. Your friend and my friend, Peter Linneman, was on the Walker webcast two weeks ago and basically said, buy every asset you possibly can buy. Cap rates are going down from here. And if there was one message Peter wanted everyone on the webcast to hear was he made a mistake 10 years ago thinking that cap rates were so tight they couldn't go tighter, and he missed the opportunity of that whole run-up in asset pricing and basically said, everyone, don't make the same mistake I made. So if we look right now and what Waterton is doing, are you on the Peter Linneman bandwagon of buying every asset you can find, or are you saying, man, a 3-2 cap rate in Tampa Bay seems a little tight to me? Yeah, well, I would say we would like to buy as many assets as we can, and uh, but it's very challenging. There, Peter's right, and he's always said this, that even with rising interest rates, which we've been seeing, cap rates are holding firmer, perhaps trending down a little bit, and it's because of all the equity capital in the marketplace but it's also because we have the highest level of rent inflation we've ever seen in our careers. When I interviewed Sam Zell at ULI, I asked him about the rent inflation in the 70s. That was the last time we really had significant inflation. He said there was no rent inflation. Every, everything else went up in price except apartments because we overbuilt apartments. So this is truly a once-in-a-lifetime period where uh, we're going to see rent growth like this. So we do want to buy assets. It's just so competitive. We're stretching and pulling every trick in the book and competing with people like Daryl. And we'll, we'll get our share. Uh, so so I, I agree with them. And, uh, you know, the other thing I just would add is we're just so underbuilt as an industry 
that we're way behind in catching up. And Doug and NMHC has been talking about this for well over a decade, that we're just not building enough housing, and uh, that's what has resulted in, in this rent inflation. Doug, it's interesting that David brings up Sam Zell, because Sam Zell was one of the founders of NMHC to push back on rent control measures that were coming out of Washington. So if you go back to 1978, right after that period where David said we weren't seeing inflationary pressures in, in housing, that's the founding of NMHC. As you think forward, Doug, your successor, what's the big issue that he or she is going to face? Well, it's it's the those are rent control is a symptom of the of the affordability challenge, and so is an eviction moratorium. Uh, the, the the biggest challenge that we face is that we need to build more housing, and we need to find ways structurally, financially, and otherwise to produce more affordable housing. That ought to be. And I'm going to make sure that I communicate that to Ken and the search team. That's got to be the overarching concern. Is there just too many people who have been left behind? And we've got to figure out better ways of doing it. Jim Schlamer's firm building, you know, a product that really makes it. And, uh, you know, Daryl's business concentrates on this. And so the more people we have um, working in this. And the problem that we face, Willie, is we don't have big issues that we can fix at the federal level. And you can't wave a magic wand through federal legislation to do anything about this. Um, yeah, you can reform HUD's Section 8 program, and then you can, you can double the number of vouchers. You can triple the number of vouchers, and that will make a difference. But at the end of the day, it's exclusionary zoning. It is nimbyism. This runs rampant that restricts our ability to produce affordable housing. So I, I think that's going to be the big challenge going forward. So with that, that's, uh, how do you solve that? Because at, at its core, it is a local issue. Yeah. It's local jurisdictions, yet we're all investing, quite honestly, in a national organization. So there's somewhat of a mismatch between where the dollars are flowing to have an impact on this. So how does NMHC think about that as it relates to you all are, for all practical purposes, centralized, and it needs to be more of a decentralized process? Well, we have to have allies. We have our allies in, in NAA and other firm, other uh, trade associations to help us. But it's got to be a full-bore, multi-pronged attack at the federal level, at the state level, and the local level. And I think also we've got to build some compelling cases that can be um, used across different sectors and in, in different localities. We've got to build our case, show that, uh, and there's some things happening out there that we can just show a light on, and we can do that through our resources of shining a light on best practices out there. I can't go fight at City Hall. I don't have the resources to do that. The folks at NAA can do that. And so there are others out there who can help us as well. But uh, I think we do what we can at the federal level, and then we use our allies and best practices to try to convince policymakers. But it's hard. Willie, I I would just add, because we're involved, NMHC is involved at all these local regional battles, Prop 21. I mean, Jim Lapidus, he's at the front line of the battles. We went into Minneapolis, St. Paul, with the St. Paul rent control. We didn't win that battle. We tried hard. And because a lot of these uh, local apartment associations just aren't set up to do these major fights, we help mobilize. We help raise money. We do on the grounds, work with them. We do public relations. We're here to assist. 
Uh, you know, I would add one other point that I would advise your successor. We have to get a national better commentary, the industry on evictions. The eviction lab at Princeton has hijacked this issue, and they've created a commentary that is certainly not representative of what happens on the ground. And we, as an industry, need to do create our own data to talk about this. Well, I think you need to go back and look at what Sam Zell did in 78. I mean, it was, he was really, the industry was facing the same set of circumstances. There were rent control, eviction moratoriums popping up differently in different states. And so that's the importance of having a national conversation about it. What happens in one state will spread with its own viruses, right, its own variants. And so we need to be thoughtful about trying to make it a unified discussion and so people across the United States can understand really the misnomer about these ideas that are media darlings but are just incorrect. You, you talked previously about 58 meetings before you got your first yes. Now you're known as one of the truly preeminent developers, owners of affordable housing as well as market rate. And you also happen to be a minority-owned firm. Now I'm assuming dollars are coming at you faster than you can. Never, never, <laughs> never, <laughs> never. never talking enough. about that. You still, you still have to go out there and knock on lots of doors, and, and uh, you know it certainly helps that we we're doing something that people have a better sense of mission about. And candidly, as and I follow David, and David as he's raised money outside the U.S., we've raised money outside the U.S. And one of the things that's fascinating, there is much more of a focus on affordable housing investment in European and Asian countries. And they view it as an appropriate, a good asset class with appropriate risk-adjusted risk returns. Ne never can have too much. But if you look at the business model that you've built and your ability to deploy capital, Avanath can only do so much to move the needle as it relates to affordable housing and the supply of affordable housing the, in America? The need is incredibly great. We can try to move the needle, but it's very, very difficult. So what's, what's the model to create more Daryl Carters? <sighs> Give us more money. But, <laughs> but I mean, no, I, I think mean, to some degree, that's right, what I'm, right, that's what right. I'm going well, after. Well, I believe that there are other companies that do what we do, that there's incredible amounts of capital that can be deployed in our space to develop and to preserve affordable housing and to look at things. I mean, we need, you know, we need to convert. There's still public housing that should be converted to rental housing that's not operated by a public entity. You know, it's ultimately capital. And it is the appropriate abilities to reduce the cost of building. I mean, I'm on the board of one of the largest uh, housing nonprofits in the country, and our average cost to build a unit is over 750000 a door. Right. Does Fannie and Freddie's focus on affordability right now concern you? No, it doesn't concern me. I think we, from a policy perspective, that's the only thing they can do right now because you're going to have the, such scrutiny on them. You may disagree with me, probably do, but they've got so much scrutiny on them right now. I think focusing on where the need is seen to be the most is probably appropriate. If you tell me who your favorite chairman or woman was, I'll tell you whether I agree. <laughs> Think about this. We're now, what are we, 12, 13 years since they went into conservatorship. No betting man or woman would have said 2022 arrives and they're still in conservatorship. Put a bet on in conservatorship or outside of conservatorship in 2030. 
Well, we heard yesterday that it's highly likely that the Republicans are going to take the House. And if we have a change in administration where they see regulation stifling the market's ability to do what's right, you could conceivably see that happen. If, for example, Biden is reelected, there right now there's a regulatory regime that we're facing that's probably going to get more onerous. And so if there's a change in, in the administration and in the houses of Congress, and it could be with either party, frankly, that's more conciliatory, I think it's possible uh, that they're going to finally say, all right, but you know what, Willie? They pocket a lot of money in the Treasury every year from Fannie and Freddie, right? Yeah, and you and I have talked about that a lot as it relates to, at some point, the federal government looks at this and they say, man, we make a lot of money. I've yet to meet with a congressman or woman, senator or senator, female or male, who said to me, oh, yeah, and we got to think about how much money we make off the GSE. <laughs> it's always politics. It's never oh, money. Oh, I know. But they don't mind getting the money in the till. Let me tell you, at the end of the day, it's, think about the tens of billions of dollars that have come in from them. And you go say, well, why should we upset the apple cart? Yeah. And then at the same time, we're also talking about a Congress that's looking at trillion one, trillion two yeah. stimulus bills that continue to come at a rate. So it's hard to think that they're thinking about tens of billions of dollars when they're talking about trillions of dollars yeah. in stimulus bills. David, you talked a bunch with Bob Iger about technology. I just want to look ahead and I want to ask you and Sue to think a little bit about your businesses 10 years from now. And how much is what you do today going to change? Are we going to be buying assets with Bitcoin? Are we going to have title insurance go away because it's all in a blockchain? What are the things that you're focused on at Waterton and Sue to you at Gables that you're really thinking 10 years from now, this industry is materially different than where it is today? The pandemic really started to accelerate some of the technology in the works, uh, the virtual tour technology, self-touring technology, smart apartments. I think that continues to get better and better and ultimately reduces people on site, maybe allows you to centralize people, automate call centers, chatbots, virtual leasing assistants. That technology is getting good and is getting better, ultimately saves on, on people. I think one thing we're focused on is using technology to lower casualty risk, leak detection, or better security and camera technology, because one of the liability insurance is a huge issue, and uh, owners of property are liable for any crimes that happen on your property, potentially. Any way we can lower the risk of casualty, I think getting to that one click <laughs> to rent an apartment, you know, you can one click and Airbnb, someone else's apartment, but you can't do it on your own. <laughs> so we're, we're going to get there, and, and I think there's going to be technology with, with all the shared apartments and uh, the Saunders of the world where people can move around with subscription services and things like that. I know my kids, who are all forced to work at home right now, they want to move around and work from home somewhere else. So... Uh, creating more flexibility in leases. So th there's a lot out there that's going to change. Sue, anything to add to what David said? Everything will change as a result of technology, everything that he said. And I think one of the solutions to help us build more affordable housing will be technology on the construction side. I think we will, we've tried to figure out modular 
We haven't figured it out yet, but 3D printing, I think there will be technology advances that allow us to build differently, and I think that will create a meaningful change in how we do business. A new and improved Katera. <laughs> new and improved Katera, exactly. You remember when we sat around at our conference and, and everyone's jaw is on the floor as Michael Marks talked about what Katera was going to do to revolutionize the right. construction industry. Not so much. <laughs> So I want to thank the four of you for joining me. And in closing, what I'd love to do is give each of you the opportunity to thank Doug for all he's done for this industry. And so, Sue, let me start by saying thank you for joining me up here and doing this. And then let me let you say thank you to Doug. Well, thank you for the opportunity. It's an honor and a pleasure to celebrate all the accomplishments of Doug Bibby. I couldn't have thought of a nicer opportunity or something that's uh, been better for me than have the opportunity to work with you and your staff and the rest of the NMHC leaders. And I'm so proud of all that we have accomplished under your leadership. I know you will continue to be involved in our industry, even if it's not here at NMHC. And I, I'm thankful for those opportunities. David? Willie, well, first, thank you for having me. And I don't know, I've been getting emotional today uh, <laughs> a few times because Doug and I have worked so closely together for the past two years in particular, but really eight years now. I'm going to miss it, but I, I have a feeling I'm going to keep me involved, but I'm looking forward to celebrating with you in Las Vegas <laughs> at your retirement party. But this has, for me, been the ride of a lifetime. You didn't ask me to thank me. But I'm not going to ask you myself. I want to thank, some, I want to thank the staff of NMHC who have made me look great so many different times. I'll just give you one example, is when uh, the pandemic really started to show itself. The staff didn't come to me and say, Doug, can we do this? And we, can we send out, you know, advisories to the, the members, and can we start a rent tracker? They did it on their own, and they felt empowered to do it. And so I'm so proud of them uh, every day. So thank you. Daryl? thank you, Willie, for organizing this and hosting this. And the one thing I would say, uh, Doug, thank you. And you've really empowered us to go out and make changes. And, and you know, you and Cindy took us up on the hill. We didn't know what in the hell to say, and you taught us how to say it. And, you know, we can kind of do that on our own now. <laughs> you've, you, you've trained us, and you've kind of marshaled us. And so thank you for that, because you've expanded what this industry does. Thank so you. thank you. So, Daryl, as you said previously, all of us are the beneficiaries of all the work that NMHC does every day. And the three of you who acted as chair, men and women, and Doug is the president for 20 years, we are all the beneficiaries of this industry growing and all the work you have done to make it so. So thank you all and thank you, Doug, for everything. Thanks, Willie. Appreciate it.